Your positive, positive, positive imprint. 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 Stories are everywhere. People and their positive action inspire positive achievements. Your PI could mean the world to you. Get ready for your positive imprint. Hello, this is Catherine, your host of the podcast, Your Positive Imprint, the variety show featuring people all over the world whose positive actions are inspiring positive achievements. Exceptional people rise to the challenge. Music by the talented Chris Knoll. Check out his music and learn so much more about his pretty rad, awesome background. ChrisKnoll.com. Follow me on Facebook and Instagram, Your Positive Imprint. Connect with me on LinkedIn. Check out my YouTube channel, Your Positive Imprint, and my website, YourPositiveImprint.com, where, of course, you can sign up for email updates to learn more about the podcast. And you can listen to the podcast, or, of course, from any podcast platform, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, any, or just your favorite podcast platform. And you can also go shopping <laughs> from the website. I've designed some items with guest quotes. One example is Dr. Michael Gerhardt's, let's get it right instead of trying to be right. Also, Elena of Czech Republic, Justice for Nature, as well as Christopher Marciano, I Sing My Pain, I Sing My Happiness. And of course, items with Rise to the Challenge, What's Your P.I.? My store is open with over 20 items to shop. Again, the website. Go to yourpositiveimprint.com. Your Positive Imprint. What's your PI? I love mountain biking, swimming, hiking, dancing tap, jazz, ballet, hip-hop, sprinting short distance, jumping on the trampoline, and now a newfound interest, indoor mountain climbing, thanks to my niece and nephew-in-law, Sarah and Cody. And I know there is no such phrase as nephew-in-law, but there is now. <laughs> well, what I was actually getting at is that my activities certainly cause wear and tear on my body, especially my feet, knees, hips, and lower back. Oh my gosh, yowza sometimes, right? Well, sports medicine has been a blessing. Today's guest shares a bit of insight into sports medicine, and here's a question. Why do companies sell specific shoes for certain activities? Well, it's not a sales pitch to buy the shoes it's real. Well, I sat outside in the mountains with the birds and also with legendary podiatrist Dr. Bob Parks. Bob was born and raised in Tacoma, Washington during a time that he says was a bit simpler then. In high school, he ran track and cross country and living a typical family life in the Pacific Northwest, which he considers an astounding beauty with the mountains and the greenery and forests. And Mount Rainier, or Mount Rainier, was practically in his backyard, so life was special every day. Like most kids, he grew up and moved away. His college years were spent as a cougar at Washington State University, WSU, where my sister's at. Go Cougs! <laughs> as the first part of the schooling which he needed to become a podiatrist. Some people have never heard of a podiatrist, but most people have heard the term sports medicine. Bob shares his positive imprints in the world of sports medicine and podiatry. It all started, I believe it was in seventh or eighth grade, when our teacher, we were having uh, vocational 
day and, and different people would come and talk to us about their professions or vocations. And we were assigned the task of trying to figure out what we might want to be when we grew up. Well, I had just recently suffered a foot injury in cross country and I went to a podiatrist. Now, back then, podiatry was poorly known by and large. Podiatry is a rather unusual offshoot in that general medicine or in the musculoskeletal realm of orthopedics. They chose to not pay as much attention to the foot, the ankle, the lower leg as maybe they should have. So another profession actually sprouted up. And in its earlier years, podiatrists were not surgically trained, were not hospital-based trained. So they were looked upon a little differently at that time. But it has evolved tremendously since that time. But, but in any event, I went to a podiatrist and I went, hmm, clean office, wears a white coat. There's a professionalism about him. So I put down on my piece of paper, I think I want to be a podiatrist in the eighth grade. And it wasn't until actually I went for my interview after college. We were going down on a scuba diving trip to Catalina Island. And I had my interview in San Francisco. And I remember sit, sitting in the chair and thinking, you know, this whole idea of podiatry was just a whim. And I certainly hope it's something I'll enjoy because this is it. I had my interview. I was accepted. And then, of course, podiatry is a four-year uh, course. And then you have your surgical residency after that. But it's funny how I just kind of slid in. And in fact, another interesting sideline to that is when I was at Washington State University, I went to my advisor. I was a zoology major and pre-med major. I told her that I wanted to be a podiatrist. And she was, well, what is that? So I kind of schooled <laughs> her in that. And subsequent to that, over the next four or five years, she had actually sent a couple more people from Washington State to the medical school I attended in San Francisco. So it's, that's kind of an interesting story as well. That is interesting. Well. Yes. So enlighten us a little bit more because you've said that it has evolved. I was fortunate enough to be in on some of the very early work on sports medicine investigation. And we had some of the people, George Sheehan, who was the medical editor for Runner's World magazine. He would lecture to our National Sports Academy. And so I was in on the initial groundwork of lower extremity sports medicine. And in fact, I was involved in sports medicine before it was popular, before the so-called running boom of the, the early 80s. I, I believe you can probably remember that there was a period of time where any social event you might go to, the conversation comes up, have you run a marathon yet? So it was kind of a, a, a stepping stone in life that while you have time, run a marathon. Now, no longer is that the case, but... I remember when I first came to Albuquerque after my residency, I was doing sports medicine when it wasn't that popular. That and as I had alluded to, the, the evolution of, of podiatry is such that my daughter, who now is a podiatrist, she practices primarily inpatient medicine and she tends to specialize in trauma of the lower leg and foot as well as limb uh, 
life-threatening injuries with the increasing number of diabetics, particularly in the Southwest, they will be admitted to the hospital with gangrene of the leg and the foot. Mm -hmm. And she's the one that has to manage those patients with infectious disease and uh, other uh, physicians to remedy their care. And uh, so it has changed tremendously and I've seen it change and it's all been for the better, I might add. Well, that, that's a good thing. Through the years, you've shared some of the stories about how everything has evolved and what you were seeing and what you discovered. Well, Catherine, first of all, I might add, when I started practice, and this was in 1978-79, we really didn't have MRIs, CT scans, bone scans wow. at our availability. And during that period of time, we relied more on our hands and we had to listen to the patients. And I like that, one of though. my one of my <laughs> closest colleagues, an orthopedic surgeon, he is a firm believer in the fact that if you don't listen to the patient and if you don't touch and feel, you're not going to be able to arrive at a at a diagnosis. It always frustrates me a bit when you make an appointment with a musculoskeletal doctor and before they even see you, they want an MRI and an X-ray. And sometimes their examination is very cursory and they're weighting their diagnosis more on the radiographic findings than what you tell the, the physician. And possibly over the course of a few visits, you have to come back and say, you know, I tried to tell you that. But on a more positive note, we would find in sports medicine, we had a running club in San Francisco, uh, of which I was a member, and people would develop injuries. And, you know, these were new injuries, you know, uh, the injuries that occur after running 20 or 30 miles. We hadn't seen the iliotibial band syndrome and, and the shin splints and the stress fractures and the tendency or propensity to develop these problems, we just didn't understand it. You're the becoming, injuries that okay. an active individual might succumb to. That's so interesting because people have been running for centuries and centuries. Well, they weren't and... running on asphalt and concrete, remember. Oh. I, I was a firm believer that when someone came into me that had a repetitive use injury or what we might call an overuse injury, that one of the best treatments is send them up into the foothills, as long as there's not too much up and down, put them on natural terrain where they're dodging a rock to the right and they're taking a left-hand turn rather than running in a straight line with the exact motion and microtrauma that the body has to absorb every time you take a step. So the management of sports injuries in a lot of senses is just a matter of moderating a person's activities or doing cross training, which at that time was not popular. Now it is understood that some degree of cross training is advantageous because whether it be running or cycling, you use certain muscles, but you don't use other muscles and you develop an imbalance, not from a chiropractic standpoint, but you're Forward moving muscles, for example, work harder than some of the stabilizing muscles. And, and by changing activities or sports, we find that this helps balance things out, not to forget the advantages of stretching and, and, and strength building as well. 
I definitely need to do more of that because when you were talking, I was thinking about all my dance. So, but I don't lift weights enough. Right. I'm glad that you brought that up. Now with these injuries, and as you call them, new injuries, how did you even talk to a patient? How did things move forward with the discoveries? George Sheehan, who I like to quote, and he was quite a character. He was a cardiologist in Red Banks, I believe, New Jersey. Um, and him and others had gone to their primary care physicians and just kind of, well, you know, if it hurts, don't do it. And he was helped by podiatry. George Sheehan really, to some extent, put podiatry, sports medicine podiatry, on the map. He had a magazine. Basically, he was the medical editor called Ask George Sheehan. Uh, and uh, he was always talking about knee problems, hip problems, and as it would relate to the foot or the foot structure. And don't forget also that running shoes were just coming into their own at that time. So they would make modifications in running shoes. And all of a sudden you'd see somebody with pain on the outside of their knees. The it would, People that would run in those shoes would be subjected to those. And since that time, I think we've seen so many transitions and evolutions of the running shoe, everything from the minimalist shoe and the barefoot running. And you know, all of these shoes have merits, but some of the shoes which were touted as being the very best, I can remember, the Nike LDV had a very wide heel. And what happened is when you land on the side of the heel, when you're coming down to contact the earth, when you're running, the foot lands to the outside and rolls to the inside. But with a very wide heel, what was happening, it would snap the whole lower extremity because it was so stable and it would cause this mechanical irritation or trauma would and it would ascend up the lower extremities and it would cause all these secondary injuries so so not only were we experimenting somewhat with our population because so much of this was new but even the running shoe industry was trying to evolve as fast as the number of people running to try to stay one step ahead of all these injuries that were occurring but again these were the very early days of sports medicine and and at that time, there weren't a lot of sports doctors. They just weren't. And, and to be honest, there's not a lot of money in that type of field because you have to spend an inordinate amount of time with the patient taking a detailed history. It was not uncommon that they would bring a basket full of shoes for you to look at to check the wear pattern. Oh, wow. Quite frequently. And they traveled some distance to come to you because you had insight. And I was a fellow long distance runner. And you had to look at all of these items that they might bring and the stories they might tell and, and certainly the examination and try to figure out, okay, here's the problem. This caused the problem. How do we reverse the problem so that you'll get better? And then, of course, there are these more complicated athletes, world-class athletes or athletes that are very seriously training for an event, and they don't have time to take any days off. How do you treat them? So these are some of the challenges of sports medicine. It was very rewarding. And I, I still have a, a, a very strong affinity for that type of a practice, as well as the surgical aspects of podiatry as well. That's part of your positive imprint. I really like what you said about 
listening to the patient and then palpating where it might hurt or where they have discomfort and then coming your own discovery. That's correct. We have to learn to advocate. And I had a gal on, Jennifer Hunter, a few weeks ago, whom you listened to, yes. the artist, which you two have something in common. But she was really trying to get across to listeners that you have to advocate. And if you don't ask the right questions of the doctor, then the doctor cannot, in turn, help Absolutely you. true. Yeah. So. And that's becoming more and more important now, particularly since doctors have such a limited amount of time with their patients that you kind of have to be your own patient advocate and raise your hand and say, doctor, doctor, I really need to get this information to you. It might be relevant, it may not be. The other thing, Catherine, I wanted to point out is disseminating the information on injuries and appropriate treatment, not only were magazines a good source, but I remember the lecturing that we would do. Mm -hmm. I had a very strong and rather large group of patients that came from Los Alamos because they were all scientists and they were all runners. <laughs> and they would invite me up to lecture and I would lecture hours on hours and, and we'd have question and answers and we would discuss all the problems that they might, might have and, and try to relate it to the biomechanics, abnormal or normal biomechanics of the lower extremities and what might be causing these problems and what the types of treatment might be available. And even at that time also, our sports academy, we had national meetings. So podiatrists that were in the hinterlands that didn't see many athletes, would be able to get information from us that saw a greater number and say, these are the best socks. This is how you stretch this problem to, to get, get the patient feeling better. So we were trying to get the word out as fast as we possibly could. And, and I think it's been pretty effective at this point. I think it's so interesting that you had a hand in the discoveries of, of, socks of different surgeries of injuries and and that you have moved podiatry forward as well as the runner and what types of shoes should I get I think that that positive imprint that you have put forth is just an incredible one worldwide that obviously is helping not just doctors but the consumers and, as, and the companies as well that are making the shoes because they have to get data from somewhere that is scientific in right. order to build a shoe that will work for a runner who runs tipsy-topsy or whatever it might be. Also, I, I might add that uh, podiatric sports medicine has had a large part in looking at the biomechanics of certain sports and how uh, the biomechanics of cycling, Nordic freestyle skiing, classic skiing, some of these events either might aid or hinder efficiency in movement. So how can you alter the function of the extremity or the foot in the boot to make a Nordic skier faster? And so not only were we treating injuries, but we were also seeing patients that came in and said, I'd like to be a faster a cyclist. I'd like to be a faster skier. Um, and I would go up on the mountain and watch him ski. And we'd, we'd talk and we'd ski together. 
and try to put something together to see. Ooh, a hands-on doctor completely. That's awesome. Well, I loved it. I loved it. (laughs) And as I got older, I just loved being around these young people that were just so, so active in sports and being around the university and working at the university in the uh, uh, sports medicine department. It allowed me to be in contact with some very, very good athletes. And you learn so much from these people. And it really inspired me because I was middle-aged and I was watching some of these people as they were getting better and better and trying to help as best I could in their improvement. Wow, that's cool. So the skis, the downhill, they've gotten shorter. So why? Well, I don't profess. It has to do with the efficiency of turning. They're parabolic and and the the actual shape of the ski itself allows the turn to be negotiated a lot more efficiently so you don't have to rotate the hips. If you used to watch um, Stein Erickson or um, Jean-Claude Keeley, mm-hmm. who won a number of gold medals, yeah. you would watch them do something called vadeling. And vadeling was the way they'd go through the gates and, and it was a very beautiful movement. But now most people that get on a shorter ski, which you know, has been the state of the art for 20 years, probably find that you almost just have to think, move, you know, a turn and your skis will turn for you. A lot of it, and particularly in Nordic skiing, it has to do with the balance of the foot on the ski. And for example, in ski skating or what we call freestyle, that is almost like an ice skating type of maneuver. And a lot of it has to do with where your pressure is. So there's a period of time where the ski glides. There's a period of time where the ski stops and pushes off for the other ski to glide. And it has to be done in a certain sequence and manner to appreciate maximum efficiency. And so all of these things, and, and as I was alluding to in recycling, the same thing is what, whether the person is in toed or out toed, looking at the knee, if it's pistoning correctly over the pedal, or whether it's going inward and how you can make adjustments, not to mention proper bike fit, which is extremely important. Sure. So, so there, there are so many aspects of sports medicine that, I mean, it just, it just, baffles the mind. After listening to you, I think that for sure, I take sports medicine for granted. I just think that, oh, the bikes have come out now and they have the clips, the in-toe, which I love. I won't ride a bike unless I can clip in. Right. And so you just think, where did they get the information from? How did they know to do that and to turn the ankle? So obviously, people like you are part of that industry. Right. As far as the the pedals, we would actually cant or wedge some of the pedals to allow the, the shoe, the, the cycling shoe to fit properly and at maximum efficiency. So to generate the maximum force when the person presses down on the pedal. Oh, gosh. See, and I, I thought it was just safety. I did. I just thought that the clips were for safety. I didn't think of it as a way of, in, as a means of endurance or Injury prevention. In fact, if you think about it, it cycling pedals on both mountain bike and particularly on road bikes, as the foot sits in the shoe on the pedal, the early ones didn't allow an inward outward range of motion. Well, people were getting knee pain as a result of that. So now they allow freedom of motion. And with that, it helps reduce knee injuries significantly as well. Ah, Well, 
thank you so much for sharing the science part. And is there anything else you want to share about the science before we move on to something that's not quite science? <laughs> I, you know, I, I think we've touched on many things. Uh, I really enjoyed it because back in those days, you weren't looking at your watch. Things have changed and certainly there are a lot of patients to be seen and, and not a lot of doctors sometimes to see all those patients. But yeah, it was it was a good time and I have very, very fond memories of, of my years in medicine. Well, and people who have seen you and obviously the industry, wonderful that you were a part of it. So you retired and you had this, wow, this amazing transition in your life. You went from science to... I, I went from left brain to right yeah, brain. Let's, literally. Let's put it that way. Yes. Join us next week when Bob shares his incredible transformation from surgeries and sports medicine to his newfound discovery of his right brain talent. Thank you, Catherine. And I would just lastly like to say that the fact that you have this podcast, Positive Imprint, I am so inspired. Oh, thank you so much for that, Bob. And, and of course, I, like you, would like people to go and find their positive imprint and put it into action. <laughs> thank you. And I thank you for your positive imprint. Your positive imprint. What's your PI? Go to yourpositiveimprint.com.